Heavenly Father, give me the strength to get through this sermon. Thank you for the immense joy that our church has in seeing uh, two young ladies being baptized. Thank you for the confident hope we have that um, all we're doing is for your glory and that you will return, Lord, to come and get your bride. Use your word to build up believers, to convict those who are yet to know you, and to show them the truths of the gospel. In Christ's name, amen. So I've wondered for years now what this thing is behind me. You see it up there? There's a little rectangle cut out. I, I wonder what it is, but I'm also bothered that it's off a little bit. I want someone to go in there and fix that thing. I was looking forward to the day where I'd be able to do that or find someone to do that. Why did someone cut it out? Why did they take the time to do that? Why did they not put it back in its proper place? There's also, if you look above the Atkins family, this paint chipping. You see it right there? I've wondered just when is that going to fall? And will it happen Sunday morning? Or maybe it will be like a paper airplane that will come and glide over to the other side of the main hall. I don't know if I should say this one, but I'm leaving, so it doesn't matter. I've wondered if we could maybe get one of the four-year-olds to climb up on the curtain and kind of break it. And then we have to go, oh, well, I guess we have to take all the curtains down because it's not symmetrical anymore. I'm sorry if that makes your job harder. Uh, the carpet has character. I've wondered if we'd be able to replace that. And guess what, church? We're replacing it. But I thought I'd get to see the new carpet. And unless it's installed in the next several days, Katie, we won't be able to see it. Um, we haven't seen any bats in a while. I remember coming to work one day and there was a sign on the door from the exterminator said, uh, no live bats found. Okay. <laughs> Were there dead bats found? Were there, their bat, what's, what is bat stuff called? Scat? Guam. Yes, you know what I'm talking about. Um, we haven't had birds in the main hall in a while. Raise your hand if you're here when there are birds flying around. Yes. And, and, and fathers and mothers, if you think that your kid is going to be distracting to me, just be assured. I've had birds flying in the main hall while I've been preaching. I, th I can do it. I've wondered if the, the parking lot's going to ever be paved. And guess what? I come to midweek gathering and they start paving it. And the pews are, are getting an uplift. They're being painted. The front steps are going to be salvaged and our church will... Give the money to fix the front steps, the underbelly of them. We've gotten new heating. We've gotten new cooling. We pay in the fellowship hall. Uh, the upstairs has been painted. There's been various plumbing issues from A to Z that have been fixed. And I really enjoyed seeing the progress. See, initially, what was hard about the idea of God leaving, leading us to Christ's covenant church in Raleigh is that I love seeing the fruit 
of what God is doing in this church. Uh, Much like this building is a work in progress to get it back to its 1929 state, uh, so we are as Christians in this church. I just wanted to reap more and more of what's been sown. But I suppose that's exactly how I should feel after all this. After all, what farmer cares for a vineyard sees some progress and then decides to go to a different vineyard. There's something about seeing the fruit of your labor that brings joy. So I think my initial hesitations and sadness about leaving this church relate to that very natural desire. But God has helped me out in his word in 2 Corinthians. He's reminded me that I am nothing. That's what he says. And Paul says that some plants... I planted Apollos water. What does it matter? I'm nothing. God is the one who gives the growth. And so I'm grateful to see our brother Mark Clifton here sitting on the front pew. This church was in a sort of state of coma in the year 2006. Is that a good way to put it, Mark? It wasn't that healthy, okay. But it wasn't dead. And the Lord brought Mark in here and others to help bring this church alive through the preaching and the proclamation of the pure, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ as revealed in his word. You see, Paul plants, Paul's waters, but God is the one who causes the growth. And when you see growth, because you don't always see growth when you plant and when you water, you just want to see more. And what I've loved as I, look about, as I think about the last five and a half years of growth here in this church What I love seeing is that more and more people are understanding what it means to live is Christ and anticipating Christ in the next life. And Paul puts this idea of Christian growth, I think, succinctly in Philippians 121. And that's going to be our text today. Philippians 121. You can turn there if you'd like. As per usual, you would think I'd understand this by now. I do not have the page number. If you have the page number to Philippians 121 in your pew Bible, please shout it out to me. Really loud. 980. Thank you. 980 if you want to follow along there. I'm going to read verses 18 to 26 just to give us context. Philippians 118. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and that in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me... To live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, 
so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Unlike Paul here, I don't feel a need to stay here for your joy and progress in the faith. But I'm sad to leave you because it's been a joy to see your joy and progress in the faith. And so this morning, I briefly want to encourage you to continue enjoying what Christ has for you here in this church and what he has for you in the next life. Enjoy what Christ has for you here and anticipate what he has for you in the next life. Firstly, to live is Christ means union with Christ. My first point really has four subpoints. It's a fancy way for a preacher to say that I have two points when I really have five. Firstly, to live is Christ means union with Christ. The phrase in Christ is mentioned around 200 times in Paul's letters. It's one of the most simple yet profound phrases. He opens a letter, if you look at uh, chapter 1, verse 2, when he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. And then if you look down in verse 19, Paul says he has reason to rejoice because he knows that through their prayers of the saints and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ that his imprisonment will turn out for his deliverance because Christ will be honored in his body, whether by life or by death. He says, if I am released, I will go on proclaiming Christ. If I die, I'm in his presence. You see, Paul has this idea of knowing and communing with God throughout the book of Philippians. You see, for Paul, he walks with Jesus. He talks with Jesus. He enjoys Jesus as he's right there with him all the time. And he speaks about Christ like he knows him personally. And intimately, because he does. Uh, look, look over a page or two at chapter 3, verses 8 and 10. Listen to this prisoner of Christ talk about knowing Christ. He says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. To live as Christ means union with Christ. To be united with Christ. So in Philippians, you see in chapter 2, there's a participation in the Spirit. In chapter 3, verse 12, he presses on toward Christ's likeness because Christ Jesus had made, has made him his own. In chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, he speaks of God in such personal ways. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then famously, what many athletes knowingly or unknowingly put on their shoes or on their biceps, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul knows Jesus. He is united to Jesus. And so, Christian, you are also united with Jesus if you are in him. Uh, Christian union, what does that mean? It at least means four things. It means justification, where sinners 
are declared righteous under God's divine law. It means adoption. Children of wrath are now beloved children of God. It means sanctification. The power of sin has been broken and we are now progressively a work of God's grace. And now we're empowered to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to grow in Christ-likeness. And Christian union means glorification. The end result of sanctification that will occur on the day of his return. Christian union is a beloved doctrine, and that's most fundamentally what it means when he says to live is Christ. And so, Warner Rowe, thank you for letting my family and I witness your collective union with Christ, collectively and individually. When I was thinking about this, I went back and searched through some baptisms over the years. And uh, I was reading them, and I came across two. And I want to read a portion of one. One is from our brother, Ken Kinney. And he said this. In 2019, is that when this was, Ken? From a young age, I was headed down the wrong path. I ignored everything I learned. Put my faith in myself, and I didn't care. But then I had a change. From the world's view, I had already saved my life. I had turned my life around. It seemed like everything was going my way and things were great, but I knew different. I was barely hanging in there, struggling as a husband and as a father and as a law partner. I tried everything and nothing seemed to work. And then I swallowed my pride and I prayed. I really prayed for the first time in a long time. I begged for forgiveness and asked for help. Later that morning, we came to church here, this church, for the first time. And that's when things truly started to change for the better. I now put my faith in Jesus like I never have before. I have let him into my life. I trust him. I am a better husband and father than I was before. I'm a better law partner. He has given me strength and humility. He has taken away so much anxiety. I had turned my back on Jesus for so long, but he never turned his back on me. It's hard to know why. Ken, thank you for letting us see your union with Christ. Another one that I came across that I thought would be edifying to read was from our sister Lorna. Where are you at, Lorna? There you are. Lorna Ogilvie, who came to church for the first time on the very same day that Ken did, right? With John and Isabel. She said in her testimony, I thought I was too evolved too smart and too cool for Christ. To be honest, Christians were simpletons to me. This is is pre-Christ. I judged them and mocked their prayers, only now knowing and believing Jesus died on the cross for my sins and rose again so I could be saved. Do I understand the purpose of prayer? I now see the purpose of my life with an entirely new perspective. My love for John and Isabel is deeper and truer with God at the center of my life. I know my life is for God's glory. I am continually amazed by God's grace and forgiveness. Praise God. So Warnell Road, marvel at how you see Christ uniting people to himself and sanctifying them. Marvel that you get to participate in watching him work in the lives of others as new creations, as workmanships. He is at work in each and every life 
of those in this church. Maybe you're discouraged at where you're at this morning when it comes to God. Perhaps you thought you'd be further along down the path of being like Jesus. Well, welcome to the club. We all wish we were more like Jesus than we are. But sanctification often looks like three steps forward and then two steps back. When you're discouraged by your own growth, look around at what he's doing in the lives of others and trust that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Take joy in this Christian union and identity. One thing that um, I'll miss being leaving Kansas City uh, are these commercials by a particular Kansas City attorney. There's one attorney who likes to tout his uh, college football career and links that to his ability to be a good lawyer. So he goes for you. Uh, so he's winning himself for you. He's like, if I can win on the field, I'll win in the courtroom. It's brilliant. And sometimes when I see it, I think, what if our church boasted in their past athletic careers? A handful of you played college football. We've had golfers. We've had soccer players. We've had other athletes. We have amazing parkour athletes, as you witnessed in our men's retreat last year. And some not so amazing. That's okay. I didn't even try it. But you wouldn't know that from the outside. Uh, That's not our boast. We're a ragtag group when it comes down to it. Church, in in your union with Christ, let him continue to be your boast because he is the one working in you. Now, we do have a lot of creative people in our church. We have a handful of PhDs. We have MDs. We got businessmen, tradesmen, entrepreneurs. We have nurses, lawyers, chefs, artists, historians, teachers, film buffs. Stay-at-home moms, engineers, and so forth. But what's encouraging is no one's wearing that on their sleeve. And if they did, I think we'd be largely unimpressed. That's because in the work of the Holy Spirit, he's made this church look to Christ as who is our head, from which the whole body is attached and growing. And so we have our source and our life in our head, Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. Church, continue to boast in your weakness. Confess your sin. Express your need through asking others to pray for you and to give you counsel. That is a pleasing aroma to him. Well, secondly, to live as Christ means Christian ambition. Christian ambition. If you Uh, Recall my sermon from last week, in many ways it sums up Christian ambition, which is really Christ's ambition. Churches are to display the glory of God through worshiping Christ and reaching the nations with the good news that Jesus Christ came for sinners. And Paul's purpose in life is to know Christ and to make him known. Or as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's Paul's aim. You see, Paul has been totally redirected. As he says in chapter 3, verse 4 of Philippians, he says this to the church, Though I myself have every reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. This is how he boasts. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day 
of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You see, Paul used to be a zealous persecutor of the church. He used to go from house to house, overseeing those who would round up Christians, men, women, and children, and he'd collect them and he'd imprison them. And some would meet even a worse fate. He counts all the accolades, though, after knowing Christ, all the prominence of his former life as rubbish. Everything he does, he wants the gospel to advance. You see that in 112. You see that in 122, where he says that uh, though he's living in perpetual pushback and persecution, these are an opportunity for Christ to be manifested through his life. He even says, church, I want you to avoid grumbling and arguing, quarreling, because I want you to shine as lights in the world. And he wants them to continue to grow and increase in fruit. You see, Paul is serving Christ and his church. And church, that's our ambition too, if you are in Christ. And so for you this morning, I wonder if the phrase was this, for to me to live is what? What would be in that blank? For me to live is family. For me to live is school. For me to live is money. For me to live is career. For me to live is retirement and 401k. What is it? Take an assessment of your life. Paul says that Christian ambition is to live for Christ purposes. I'm grateful for this church that we have a perpetual reminder of that. Every August come some young, barely out of high school students in this program called Fusion through Spurgeon College in northern Kansas City. And I wonder if, church, we've seen just what a blessing these zealous college students have been to our church. If you're in the Fusion program or if you have been in this Fusion program, I want to thank you. You have helped us to see, to put God's global purposes at the forefront. We can't ignore what God is calling all Christians to be involved in. When you guys come up here asking, how come we don't evangelize more? Hey, let's pray for this thing. Let's pray for that thing. It's a blessing to our church. You see, when you get older... You generally, generally, you have more money. You generally have more responsibility. And your ambitions can more easily become sidetracked. And so to the men and women who are zealous for God's purposes among the nations, thank you for encouraging our church to keep our eyes fixed on the resurrected Jesus Christ and his worth to be proclaimed among all nations. Thank you, Bill and Mary Beard. It was a joy for you to share at our midweek gathering on Wednesday. Thank you for letting us see your ambition with international students and for the impact you've had for over a couple decades of witnessing and hosting international students. It has been a joy to see. 
Daniel Schwartz, thank you, brother, for letting us into your heart. For going to Ethiopia to care for your 14-year-old biological brother who has HIV. Church, to live as Christ and Christian ambitions all around us. People reorienting their life for Christ's purposes. And it's a beautiful thing. You see this everywhere. It doesn't always have to be in big, loud ways. We have a number of seminary students here. I want to read something to you, seminary students, from uh, George Whitfield's biography, famous biography by Arnold Dalimore. In the introduction, he says this. The purpose of his biography is this. It's my desire that we shall see the great head of the church once more raise up unto himself certain young men whom he may use in, his, in this glorious employ. And what manner of men will they be? Men mighty in the scriptures, their lives dominated by a sense of the greatness, the majesty and holiness of God, their minds and hearts aglow with the great truths of the doctrines of grace. They will be men who have learned what it is to die to self, to human aims and personal ambitions. Men who are willing to be fools for Christ's sake, who will bear reproach and falsehood, who will labor and suffer, and whose supreme desire will be not to gain earth's accolades, but to win the master's approbation when they appear before his awesome judgment seat. They will be men who will preach with broken hearts and tear-filled eyes, and upon whose ministries God will grant an extraordinary effusion of the Holy Spirit, and who will witness signs and wonders following in the transformation of multitudes of human lives. If you are in seminary, let that be your aim. Do not get sidetracked. Thirdly, to live as Christ means Christian suffering. (laughs) Paul is in prison when he writes this letter. Verse 7 says that. He says in 129, For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. In chapter 2, verse 17, he describes his life as one great sacrifice being poured out as a drink offering. In chapter 2, verse 30, he mentions a, name, a man named Epaphroditus who nearly died and got sick for the work of Christ. He says in 3.10 that he shares in Christ's sufferings, becoming like him in his death. In 3.18, he says that in his suffering, he is endured because of the ministry of Christ. In 4.12, he says that he has suffered for Christ by going hungry, by being impoverished. And all along in the suffering, he did not doubt God's goodness in trials because he knew how undeserving he was of Christ's love for him. You see, Paul was a persecutor of the church. Yet God stopped him in his tracks and opened his eyes to see that Jesus Christ from Nazareth really is the promised Messiah who lived a completely pure life, who died as a sacrifice on the cross for sinners. He rose from the dead, ascended on high, and who is worth waiting for. You see, this changes your view of suffering if you are in Christ. Because these greater and eternal realities outshine any hardship. It's not that as a Christian your trials shrink. It's that Christian suffering means that the eternal realities outshine the hardships. They grow smaller 
lighter. They become momentary when put next to Christ, who is omnipotent, eternal, and full of glory. You see, Christ is the true and better Adam. He is the promised seed of Abraham, the Lion of Judah, the Holy King, the suffering servant, the conquering, the anointed conqueror of the Scriptures. This is our Jesus Church. And he laid down his life for his sheep. And he says to pick up your cross and to follow me. And so as Christians, we become people of the cross. People who volitionally lay down down our lives, our preferences, our ambitions, our everything. And in this laying down, we often suffer. And sometimes we even die. This is the normal Christian path. And we just happen to be in a unique time and space in history when Christians just are not that severely persecuted, at least in our country. Definitely in our country to the point of death, usually. So World Road, continue to trust God in what you cannot understand. We don't know how Christian persecution may increase. We don't know if we'll look like North Korea or Iran, China parts of India one day, we have no idea. But we must understand that suffering is not catching God by surprise. We must understand, we know for certain that God loves us because he's demonstrated his love for us by giving his only begotten son. And God never tells us the very purpose of each one of our hardships and sufferings, though we wish he would. But we know he loves us. We're confident of that. And so Warner Road, take on the spirit of English poet William Cooper, who said, behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. Or the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Let this free you up, that when you are suffering, and especially suffering on behalf of being faithful to God, Let us free you up from asking God, why, why, why? Why are you doing this? Charles Spurgeon says that when we ask why, God, why this divine providence that is so bitter? Spurgeon says that when we ask why this affliction was sent and why that, why Father died, why those children that we loved so well are taken from us, why do we not prosper in our various enterprises? Why, why, why? When we begin asking why, 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 what an endless task we have before us. If we become like a weaned child, we shall not ask why, but just believe that in our Heavenly Father's dispensations, there is a wisdom too deep for us to fathom, a goodness veiled but certain. It is so freeing and so joyful to continue to lean into that truth. So I was looking through the membership directory this past week. I was reminded of all the times I've driven away from one of your houses or I've met with you at a coffee shop or a restaurant or you've walked away from my house or, or this office. And I was overwhelmed with gratitude for the way that so many of you, the way that you, Leah and Matt and Ken and Diana, Joshua and Josiah and Art and Mary, and Alex, and Randy, and Allison, and Audrey, and Sam. I could just go on and on and on. The way that to live as Christ means to suffer like Christ. And of course, you're not doing it perfectly. 
But you do have faith. And your suffering is taking on a Christocentric form that brings glory to Jesus and hope to all those who know you. So thank you, church, for pulling back the curtain a bit and letting me and my family see that to live as Christ means to suffer Christ-like. All of the times I hear you bear witness to hardships, you show a desire to trust God because you fundamentally know that to live as Christ and that suffering does not cut us off from him because he who sends the waves brings us nigh unto the shore, the rock of Christ. Church, your suffering is always doing something in God's world. Depression, unmet desires to be married, unmet desires to have children, cancer, car wrecks, muggings, parents that are disappointed with you, a hard boss being mocked by your family, hard employees. If you're hurt by gossip and if you're moving to a place and away from a place that you love, it's not aimless. Your suffering is never aimless. It's that we may know him and know him in his suffering. It's an invite into divine Trinitarian love. You see, but it's hard to suffer alone. And in God's wisdom, Christians are not meant to do that. So lastly, to live as Christ is to live, it means to live in Christian fellowship. Christian fellowship is an outflow of our union with Christ. So we're united with Christ, and guess what? Now we're family. We're all united together with all Christians over the world, but particularly Christians in this church. He talks about the partnership with the gospel. He holds them in his heart because they're partakers of grace with him. He wants them to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith. This is a book where you cannot leave an iso- read in isolation yourself. You cannot just say, what about me in this book? No, it's meant to be corporate, to be communal. Pursue humility together. Have the same mind, the same love, one mind in Christ Jesus. Count others more significant than yourselves. So church, to my family, thank you for displaying sweet, Christ-centered fellowship. It has been such a blessing. You know, I want to speak to my family for a little bit. I want to speak to to Katie and to Trey and to William. Where are you at, Will? To Lachlan. (laughs) Can I get a hand? There it is. To Lachlan, to Emery, and to Brooklyn. It's not a waste that we came here five and a half years ago. Not at all. It is true that our relationships will change when we leave from this place. Friendships will take on different forms and they will not be the same kind of shared experiences you have now. But I want to say a few things regarding the Christian fellowship you've seen in this church. You've gotten to see college students passionate about the gospel of Christ. What kids get to experience that? That's a blessing. I couldn't pay enough money to get that kind of experience. And to my daughters, Brooklyn and Emery, what teenager receives letters from older women who are interested in their lives? Where can you find women like Christina Farmer who are willing to spend their Saturday, their Saturday mornings with you, studying God's word, 
See, Brooklyn and Emory, God planted you here for a season. And you got to see what so many young girls never get to see. Older women modeling Jesus Christ to you and loving you. And you got to see it up close. To my sons, Trey, Lachlan, and William, I want to say something as well. You have gotten to see Christian fellowship in godly men, haven't you? You have witnessed men with strong conviction and compassion. Courageous men, bold men, lion-hearted men who are also kind, gentle men. Trey, Lachlan, and Will, you can't see it now, but when you look back on your life, you will see with even more gratitude how God gave you this place for this season in your life. Remember how Cal Stack used to come over our house and play with us and wrestle and play sports? Remember how Josiah greets you by name and talks to you? And then there are the older men, at least in our church. It doesn't mean you're that old. You get to see Andrew Evans and Matt Obenhaus and Philip Van Steenberg and Matt Emmerich and Ken Kenny and John Ogilvie and Jeff Chang and so many more men. What a privilege. So many young boys just grow up in homes and their only exposure to people really are their parents or extended family. But you've seen godly men up close. I hope quickly you'll be able to look back with gratitude for the way that God has blessed you here. Church, thank you for letting my boys run around the pews, even though I don't think they should. Thank you for letting them, for playing football in our front yard. We've had wonderful neighbors. We have a wonderful street. It's a joy for us to watch our kids be in a somewhat urban environment and to be somewhat free from the hard realities of this world. Childhood is brief. And to our neighbors and to this church, you have let our kids really enjoy living here. And that's why it's so painful leaving. So thank you. Thank you, Rowan. Thank you, Henry, for being good friends with Trey. Nolan, thank you for being a dear friend to Lachlan. Jacob Raby, thank you for being a friend to Lachlan. Ford, thank you for being such a good friend to William. John Evans, thank you for being a good friend to William. Ellie and Gwen and Eve and Jubilee, thank you for being friends to Brooklyn and Emory. It is Christ in you that makes it so sweet and so good. And lastly, to Katie. Katie, you are a woman <laughs> to whom your daughters look up to, the kind of woman your sons want to marry and the kind of wife that your husband feels utterly happy that he got to marry.
You have modeled so well to the women in this church. Proverbs 31 and Titus 2. Thank you for displaying true Christian fellowship to the men and women of this church. And to my family, I can say with confidence that we'll find similar things in the church we're going to. It won't look exactly the same. But because we're moving from one group of Christ-transformed people to another group of Christ-transformed people, we will also get the benefits of being around people who can say to live is Christ. And lastly and briefly, to longer service than usual if you're a guest. (laughs) And there's no Chiefs game till like tonight. That's awesome. I'll keep going. Lastly and briefly, the better life. To die is gain. My daughter Emery, the one who got baptized in a play the, uh, this Friday by the Greek playwright um, Sophocles. And it's called Antigone. And in the play, Antigone suffers a lot of tragedy and uses the same word gain here as Paul uses for me to live as Christ and die as gain. And Antigone says this in the play. Whoever lives in as many ills as I, how does this one not get gain by dying? Her life's been so hard, she says, how is death not better than this? Paul's not exactly saying that. For Paul, death is not like that. It's not an escape from the hardships in this life. Though he speaks of the great amount of pain he has in this life, he also speaks numerous times of the joy he has in this life. In Paul's view, his death would do two things. It would advance the gospel. The death of Christians, martyrdom often does that. As early church father Tertullian says, uh, the blood of the the martyrs is a seed of the church. Uh, But secondly, Paul's saying that death is gained to him because he will be with Christ. For me, death gained. What it actually says in the Greek, there's no is, there's an emphatic way to say, for me to live, Christ, to die, gain. It's better than all that entails in this Christian life. You see, Paul's living for a different world. He's pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says his citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, and that the Lord Jesus will transform this lowly body to be like his glorious body. Paul is able to live out the Christian life so fully because he believes Jesus was crucified, then risen from the dead. And Paul is completely banking on his return. He's putting all his eggs in that one basket. Oh, friends, one wrote, Jesus is coming back. It's the only thing that makes sense in this world. You see, we desire to be ruled by fairness and justice and power and love. But you'll never find that rule in this world. You won't find it in Biden. You won't find it in Trump. You won't find it in Obama or Reagan or Putin or Caesar or Nelson Mandela or Winston Churchill or Queen Elizabeth. There's no one who can rule like Jesus, who's yet who's powerful and loving. His rule and reign will be glorious. One day, church, heaven will open up. And there will be one who is sitting on a white horse whose name 
is faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And all the hosts of heaven will follow. Full arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. And on his thigh the name is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And the angel of the Lord will invite all to gather for the great marriage feast of God. Friends, that's our game. And during this eternal feast, we will have in full what we only have partially here in this church. Our gain will be fully present union with him. Our gain will be fulfilled ambitions of worshiping him with people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Our gain will be suffering that leads to an eternal weight of glory. And our gain will be Christian fellowship with one another as we sit around the king of the table of the king. So we need to have this mindset about us that Mary Beard's grandpa doll had about him. I'm ready to go, but willing to stay. As Richard Baxter said, the Puritan, he says, When I die, the gospel dies not, the church dies not, the praise of God dies not, the world dies not, but perhaps it will grow better. And those prayers be answered which seem to be lost, and perhaps some of the seed I have sown will spring up when I am dead. Well, by the grace of God, I've gotten to see a lot of seed spring up. It's not as much as I wanted to. I wanted in my own ambitions, my own desires in some ways to be here long term. But I am so grateful for the leadership of this church. I have not thought for one second, uh-oh, what will happen when I leave? What a gift to this church you have of healthy church members and healthy church leaders. In conclusion, one row, thank you for showing me and my family Christian living. Thank you for letting me pastor you so that your soul will be ready to meet Jesus on that day. Thank you for helping me and my family also be better prepared for that day. Keep living for him. His gaze is upon you and you are in his heart. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this church. Thank you for the way that we have seen what it means to live as Christ. And thank you for the great hope that there are gains, even in something as horrible as death, for those who are in Christ. Lord, if there is someone who doesn't know you, we pray that they would examine the scriptures just like Ken did and Lorna did and John and Isabel and so many others in this church, that they would examine the scriptures to see if they are true. And we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would show them the truthfulness, the validity of the scriptures. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.